1: flushcarecom slash
0: You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies.
1: For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right.
0: One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Michael Platt. Michael is the James S. Reapy University professor at Wharton School. He also has a professorship at the medical school and also in the psychology department at the University of Pennsylvania. Michael caught my attention in a recent article called Cracking the Code on Brand Growth, which was from Wharton and had an associated podcast with it as well where he talks about neuroscience and the connection to brand choice and loyalty. And so we spend quite a bit of time on the podcast today talking about that. I think you'll find a lot of implications for brand managers, brand leaders out there in terms of how they should be thinking about it. We use examples in uh, studies that he has yet to publish, but is working on between Apple and Samsung as two brands in the study. And we also talk about the implications for new brands like Dollar Shave Club and the opportunities for new brands to create their mark. I hope you enjoy this show with Michael Platt. Well, Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. It's really great to be here.
0: Well, Michael, let's start with your background and where you started your studies, how that led to your work in neuroscience, and how how we make decisions.
1: Sure. Well, I'm happy to talk about that, and I think it would be it will be interesting for your listeners because my path is anything but linear. So, um, I actually started out. Uh, As an anthropology major, I went to college at at Yale, Uh, and my interest was really trying to understand what makes us human, so trying to understand human nature, and anthropology provided a really broad framework for doing that, basically looking at humanity, human behavior, human thoughts from the perspectives and lenses of of culture and linguistics and archaeology and and biology as well. that's how I got my start, and I, I followed up on that by doing a PhD in anthropology as well uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I am now. So uh, I did my PhD there, and I kind of drove my interests into beginning to think about neuroscience at that time. So I was very interested in how the human mind has come to be so elaborated, and the human brain is um, so large relative to other other animals and other primates, and so. That led to a few specific investigations of of how our brains might be specialized for certain kinds of learning and memory. That project and my thesis did not include any neuroscience, but it really got me thinking hard about neuroscience. And I became convinced that in order to really address all of the kinds of questions that I had, I would really need to acquire the tools of neuroscience. And so uh, after my PhD, I went to NYU where I did a postdoctoral fellowship, essentially a second PhD in neuroscience. So I really started from scratch, took the first year graduate program in neuroscience and began to learn the techniques of neurophysiology and eye tracking at that time to try to begin answering questions about how it is that our brains actually make decisions. And so that was my training really. and the product of that work as a, as a postdoctoral fellow was a paper that my mentor Paul Gwensher and I published in 1999, which has been called the first paper in neuroeconomics, which is a field that tries to marry the formal mathematical axioms of economics and the experimental approaches of psychology with contemporary neuroscience techniques. And so that project and that paper was really about saying whether those kind of core basic assumptions of economics that we, you know, namely that we make choices, we make decisions based on some kind of representation of value actually live in our brains. And that's, in fact, what we discovered. And so that put me on the path to spending a large part of my career trying to understand how our brains decide and how we can leverage that to uh, potentially understand all kinds of decisions and, and maybe help to improve decisions
0: naturally, it doesn't seem like a a natural fit, I guess, to put anthropology and neuroscience together. What was the trigger for you to put those two things together or to evolve the way you you saw the world?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it was, I think this happens to a lot of people when you're halfway through your uh, PhD thesis and you realize, oh, if only I, you know, had done things a little bit differently, I could be addressing all of these um, really interesting, important questions. And in, you know, in, in the case of my thesis, it was really about how how are these learning and memory specializations actually embodied in the, in the circuitry and uh, the activity of our brains. And so that's really what kind of pushed me in the direction of acquiring neuroscience expertise. And then once you do that, and I, I was fully aware of this, it really opens a lot of um, doors, right? So uh, by the time I was done with that, uh, so I was I don't know 29, 30 years old, and, and you know I had all this rich set of ideas from anthropology, all these interesting hypotheses, which were potentially open to neurobiological investigation now that I had acquired the tools. That didn't mean that the field was ready for it yet, because right. um, you know at the time you know neuroscience was Still mostly, uh, you know, and, and it's a little bit true today, but certainly at that time, it's mostly focused on a lot of the basic nuts and bolts of of sensation and the control of action, and in particular, what goes wrong in various disorders. And so although I was ready and equipped and prepared to go, the first few years, you know when I had a, my own faculty position at Duke University, were pretty much devoted to moving in a fairly slow way. To do some, you know, some basic studies where we could show some relevance for human health, uh, human brain health, but, but put us on a path to maybe opening up that cornucopia of, of, um, you know, questions, which now, you know, now that I'm back at Penn and I'm in the business school and in the school of medicine and psychology, I'm really, you know, it's just incredible the range of, of really exciting things that are going on here and that, and, you know, that we're helping to, um, you know, helping to foster uh, here. uh,
0: Well, you, you do, like you just said, you cross all those three disciplines, at least psychology, business, medicine, and you have appointments in all of those areas at Wharton. How do you balance all of that? And are there, are there advantages or disadvantages to that?
1: Yeah, well, there, there are huge advantages, and that was one of the reasons that I came here from Duke. I mean, I had a, an amazing gig at Duke. I was running a big institute for brain sciences and and, a, and another couple of centers that I was involved in. But, you know, the opportunity to really be fully appointed in one of the top, if not the top, school of business in the world, while simultaneously being in school of medicine was really, you know, incredibly attractive and disruptive and, I think, a signal to the field. You hit on something though that is really challenging, which is that when you have multiple appointments, you have multiple obligations, um, as mm-hmm. I do in terms of teaching. I feel very passionate about the teaching mission for, for the school of business and for the college and for the school of medicine. You know, I'm I'm in, torn. So I'm. I mean, one thing that it does for me that helps me to keep in shape because I'm running all over <laughs> all day long, and I have an office in Wharton. I have an office in medicine. I have two offices in Wharton, really, and I have um, labs in three different buildings. So I'm constantly on the move, and, um, you know, I, I feel like they need to put a tracking device on me, you know, a little <laughs> Spidey tracker that can uh, at least give the people in my lab some sense of where they can find me.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Well, I'm I'm sad to say I missed you while you were at Duke because I, I live and work in Durham, and uh, so – I was literally at the party, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, you know, Durham's a great place. It's very vibrant. Love Duke. But, yeah, clearly I passed it across while I was there. (laughs) That's
0: funny. Well, now, I ran across your name through a recent article called Cracking the Code on Brand Growth. It was published at at one of the Wharton's, I guess, online publications. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to talk about what you found, you know, this link, if you will, between neuroscience and brand choice and loyalty, and kind of maybe talk 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 through what you found so far. And, sure, and then and then I may have a couple follow up questions.
1: Sure. So that paper, that article, I should say, and, and podcast were was um, a joint venture with uh, Leslie Zane, who is um, you know not in academia but is a, a marketing practitioner and has her own company. You know we were brought together by uh, acquaintances who knew us both and thought that you know there could be something fruitful that would come out of our interaction and um you know currently in marketing if you're trying to develop a brand strategy you need to investigate how people actually think of and, and feel about your brand and how they might respond to changes in that brand right and that traditionally has been done you know really the only available tool at your disposal is to ask people questions right mm-hmm. so you can ask them how do you feel on a scale of one to ten or what's the personality of apple or basically ideas like that or you can ask people to use imagery which is i think a fairly common technique in the field so you have them go through magazines and cut out pictures that you know that make them think vividly of, of a particular brand and in that way, come to some sort of understanding of what that brand means to people, you know, means to individuals, whether they're shared, shared conceptions and feelings about that brand. It was really timely to get together to talk with Leslie the few times we got to talk last fall because we were just completing the first study that I've ever done in marketing. So that, you know, that's exciting for me now that I'm in the marketing department at work <laughs> and we and we've now done three or four, but the first one was really a study that amplified on a lot of work that I do in my own basic science lab, which is trying to understand how we connect to other people. So we do a lot of work in both animal models and in human beings to try to unravel the circuitry and the mechanisms that allow us to connect with other people, to understand them, to feel empathy for them, you know, to have a, a strong emotional resonance with them. And, you know, this is really important for how we, you know, how we interact. It's certainly really important when these mechanisms go awry, as they do in disorders like autism and schizophrenia. And so we, you know, we use, we try to use this knowledge to to help people who have trouble Mm -hmm. connecting with others. But in, in marketing, there's been a longstanding hypothesis amongst both academics and practitioners that... The way that people connect to and relate to brands is basically by using the same mechanisms that they relate to other people. So, and that's why, for example, we we you know we can have these emotions, you know, say I love this brand or I hate this brand or this brand has a very you know strong masculine personality or this one is um, you know creative, etc. So we use all of these terms that we use to describe other people. We use words that betray, you know, social emotions, mm-hmm. envy. To uh, we apply those to brands, and so it seems like a reasonable hypothesis. But until now, nobody had really tested it other than by asking people questions. And so there had been one or two other studies, uh, actually two other studies that had been done looking at brand personality by friends and colleagues at uh, Berkeley. Haas School of Business and also at the University of Michigan, but what we did in our study was to specifically ask the question about whether when people relate to a brand, when they hear news or they read news about their preferred brand versus another brand, do we see evidence in their brains of actual engagement of circuitry and responses that you would see in a person who was uh, hearing news about a good friend or family member right so and that is what we predicted based on this relational hypothesis of branding basically if I'm uh, you know if I am an Apple iPhone user and uh, I hear good news about Apple my brain the parts of my brain that are involved in reward and empathy are going to light up they're gonna be really active and if um, I hear news about a rival smartphone brand then you won't see that happen and so that's actually the, you know, that's actually the core of the study we did, which was to recruit Apple iPhone users and Samsung Galaxy users to the lab. And they laid down an MRI machine, you know, standard kind of MRI machine. You get your knee scanned or, or whatever if you got a broken bone or soft tissue damage. So we had them lie in that machine. And what that allows us to do with some, a little bit of fancy uh, uh, physics analysis is to create snapshots of brain activity, their brain in action hmm. while the subjects are, are actually reading news about Apple and Samsung. And then they would, and then we asked a few other questions such as, how do you feel about what you've just read? You know, so oh, I felt really good on a scale of one to five, or I felt really bad. And we also asked, asked them subsequently, you know, how likely they would be to share that information on social media.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And so that's a recent study. Has it, has it been published?
1: It's currently under review. Okay. So yeah, it's sort of, you know, a little bit of spilling the beans early, but <laughs> there's been so much interest in the study that it's, it's kind of hard not to talk about it. Right. But because uh, I think it, it's really remarkable for a variety of reasons. I mean, so if I were to give you a snapshot of what we found, basically, you know, both Apple and Samsung customers reported very strong empathy for their own brand. So if you're an Apple iPhone user, you say you feel really good when you hear that Apple stocks went up and you feel really bad when, you know, when Steve Jobs died or something. And if you're a Samsung user, you know, you feel really bad when you hear that their battery is exploding or something like that. So everybody is reporting very strong empathy. But then when we looked in the brains of these customers, we found something quite different. So the Apple users were as predicted, which is that when they heard good news about Apple, the parts of their brain that are involved in hearing good news about a friend were very active. So they have strong empathy. And if they heard bad news about Apple, you saw the kind of parts of their brain that are involved in pain and empathy for pain in others were active. And so that was, you know, that's fantastic. There's a nice match there. But for Samsung, it was quite different. So our Samsung customers, of course, they reported strong empathy for their brand, But we saw no evidence of empathy in their brains for Hmm. Samsung. So if they heard good news about Samsung or bad news about Samsung, we saw absolutely no recruitment of empathy-related responses in their brains. And so that is pretty interesting, I think potentially really troubling for marketing practitioners because it definitely demonstrates that there's a discrepancy between what people say they feel and what their brains are actually doing. And, you know, maybe people are exaggerating how much they felt. Maybe something else is going on. But um there's clearly a disconnect hmm. between how people are responding verbally, you know, on a survey and, you know, what their brains are doing. Now, we were able to even build upon this. And, and one fascinating thing we found is that the one thing that Samsung user, customers' brains did show was reverse empathy for Apple or schadenfreude. So <laughs> basically, basically, you see the activation of reward-related areas in Samsung customers' brains when they hear bad news about Apple and you see the kind of activation of pain. You see sort of a pain response uh, when they hear good news about Apple. And this, to some degree, I think, corresponds to some of their their self-report, which is that they reported a little bit of, you know, envy towards Apple and that they felt like, you know, Apple was a sort of a has a higher status associated with it. And they feel a little bit, sorry, envy Mm -hmm. uh, toward individuals who actually are able to possess that brand. And so, you know, we followed, we followed that analysis up with one looking at their likelihood, their intention to share the news on social media. Mm -hmm. And we found that in Apple users, we saw recruitment of parts of the brain that are involved in kind of thinking about yourself and your own identity, self Referential processing whenever they heard news about Apple and then this predicted their likelihood of sharing that information so it's kind of like Apple users are It's such that Apple is such a a core part of who they are, right? It's part of their self identity their group identity Whereas for Samsung it was quite different. The only kind of evidence we had of, of self versus other processing was was evidence for recruitment of brain areas that are involved in processing information about distant others. So people that are not part of your group, people that are not part of your identity, right? So if you wanted to um, have you know kind of the take home results of the study in one pithy little sentence, it goes, it's all about Apple for both groups of customers. For Apple customers, it's like, yeah, we're part of Apple. That's part of my identity. Apple is my close friend my family member my tribe whereas for samsung it's i buy samsung because it's not apple because i hate apple i'm envious of apple (laughs) i don't want to have anything to do with apple it makes me sick to hear more about apple so that's why i choose samsung and so you know this is a really interesting revelation because there's certainly room for a a third brand to come in and compete by targeting samsung customers because essentially you know, our prediction is that they would have very little loyalty to Samsung because they don't have any direct social or emotional connection to that brand. right. right. A lot can happen in the next three years. like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
0: Well it it sounds like a I mean it's a, a almost a dire situation for Samsung other than the fact that Apple still exists.
1: right. and and Samsung, you know the the other thing about Samsung is they' you know they have a good value proposition in the sense that their phones are relatively inexpensive and they're functional, right? right. so it's, so so the customers do have a functional product, and maybe they're just the kind of people that don't need that social emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. but you know, that does mean I think that they could be easily persuaded to, to try another brand and maybe they would be, we would predict that they would be quite likely to switch. Right. right. I don't think you can get an Apple user to, you know, (laughs) to leave their tribe. That would be really painful for them to do.
0: Well, one of the, one of the other concepts that you elaborate on in the podcast and on this, in this article is this thing called a, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, I'm probably sure, but a connect, connectome, is that how you say it?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we talk about the connectome, and we talk about it in a couple of ways. So this is uh, an insight of Leslie. So she, there in neuroscience, there's a grand project called the Human Connectome Project, mm-hmm. and it's basically an effort to map out every single connection in the human brain. So there are 70 billion neurons in the human brain, and, and we estimate that they make about 100 trillion connections with each other, give or take. And so this is a huge undertaking involving multiple labs and, and billions of dollars. And it's still in its infancy, even though it's been ongoing for, I think, you know certainly a decade or more at the moment we only have in in human brains the capability really to map out the very kind of macroscopic connections between parts of the brain but not individual neurons in in animals there are efforts to uh, and actually now beginning in humans to try to understand how each and every individual neuron connects to other neurons and this is, so this is a this is a massive undertaking and it's kind of like the human genome project in the sense that we don't know what kind of actual insights that will yield, right? but I think it's a strong bet to say that if we, if we have all this information, that it, you know, it will pave the way for understanding a lot of things, including a lot of, of human neurological disorders. So the notion of a brand connectome is one of basically a map of all of the connections that a brand makes within your brain, within your mind. And I think you can appreciate at the moment that it, this is effectively or essentially a metaphor, right? So in the sense that we currently can't directly map brands onto neurons in your brain and their connections between each other. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, we are at a place in neuroscience. We're at a time where we can understand Say how different concepts or words or ideas are mapped out in your brain. And, you know, that can provide some intriguing insights. And so that is where we are heading with this, which is trying to go beyond, you know, in much the same way that we, that we talked about in terms of a brand empathy. If we can go beyond self report and get to a place where neuroscience can reveal to us the ways in which brands Are connected to particular product categories and all the associations that those brands actually have within your brain. And you know, the idea that if you can, that basically you can create a better, stronger brand by creating a richer, denser, more interesting, more positive set of connections within the brain.
0: Interesting. I mean, I've, now I'm probably operating at a, at a disadvantage. I don't have an MRI machine. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm only yeah. doing somewhat self-reported, but I have done some applied research uh, uh-huh. using verbatims. So, you know, let's say I give a consumer a Stimuli for a brand like a logo or or some sort mm-hmm. of visual as well, and then ask them to type in the associations and I kind of forced them mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm. give me more than just one right so right, right some 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 depth there and it was interesting doing that type of research for positioning, so to speak because you could start to um see the richness of the language that people use to describe you know say one brand versus another. And I, I realize it's self-reported, so I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage based on what you're finding in terms of what people say or report versus what their brain, brain shows. But I really connected to that concept
1: mm-hmm. of the
0: richness just because of the verbatim work that I've done.
1: Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I'm not saying, and we certainly don't have any evidence that the, you know currently that, that there is necessarily a disconnect between that verbatim response and the richness of the concepts and words that people apply to a particular brand we don't know that having brain data will tell us something more beyond that we do have a study where we have examined the relationship between free recall of brands Mm -hmm. so which is a which is a kind of primary measure of brand equity so basically what what you find is if you You know, if you say, okay, just recall in order of, you know, as as they come to mind, soft drink brands, right? Mm -hmm. So people go, oh, Coke, Pepsi. I don't know what's next. (laughs) 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 Sprite, Budweiser, it depends on what you're saying, beers, whatever. And what you'll find when you do that is that the latency to give those responses is highly correlated with market share. So, you know, so for whatever reason, those brands that have a stronger representation in your mind will be remembered first, right? And they actually do better. And we don't know what's cause and effect here. Maybe they're, because they do better, because they're everywhere, maybe that's why they have a sort of stronger uh, representation in your brain. But we examined this question in a recent uh, brain imaging study, which is also not published. We're, We're currently working on the paper, but kind of in a nutshell, what we found is that if we give people a particular product category, like car, right? And then we ask them to, and then we look at, we scan their brains when they see words that represent different brands of cars that outside the scanner, people had generated through free recall. Okay, so it mm-hmm. might be, so they're we're looking at brain responses to car and then to Ford and BMW and Hyundai and Toyota, etc. And what we found is that within people's brains, the stronger the overlap in the pattern of responses between a particular brand and car the more likely and the earlier that brand would be to would be recalled and also the stronger the you know the higher the market share so there's a very you know that's beginning to kind of close the loop if you will between verbatim reports and how this information about brands is represented in your brain mm. And we were actually able to use that framework to test the sort of subsequent question, which is, how would this generalize? So say you wanted to, say you were one of these car companies and you were thinking about introducing a personal computer line, okay? So we could examine the mapping from car to computer. And so we also looked at the responses in the brains of these participants to the word computer, and then we looked at the basically that same mapping question, but now for car brands, but how much overlap was there with the computer? And that was pretty interesting too because there were basically a couple of brands that a couple of car brands that looked like they had a very high generalization or predictive relationship for for computers. So you know, if I were advising BMW, I'd say, well, wow, if you're thinking about introducing a new laptop, that would be really good. <laughs> Cause basically, people's brains are saying, yeah, the mapping between BMW and computer is very high, and we found the same thing for Japanese brands as well, so like Toyota. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes some sense. We saw, you know, if Ford wanted to introduce a, a computer, <laughs> the brain basically said, you know, that is a no go. Don't do it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like when that's like when Colgate was marketing frozen dinners. Oh yeah. Seventies. <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> and we found that to be pretty intriguing.
0: That's, that's, that's really fascinating. I mean, I would love to, I'd love to, well, one stay in touch. Cause there's a lot of similarities between the language analysis I was doing before as well. Cause we, cause you're this concept of brand stretch, right. Is what yeah. you're describing yeah. and what kind right. cara- adjacencies can I go into? We did something similar for a sauces brand or cooking brand, I should say.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And the nuance between Them wanting to go into say pour over sauces, so let's say it is let's say I cook a piece of chicken and then kind of dump the sauce on top, and that's Uh that's all the sauce does. Versus creating some sort of ingredient brand in a dish down the line, and and there are much higher scores, I guess, is the best way to describe it in in general terms, but overlap and scores in the ingredient side versus the pour over. And I think it was due to the core equities of the parent brand being an ingredient brand. And we also found a lot of correlations to this category brand connection that you described. So if you happen to be the one that stands the strongest and the loudest for the category benefit, whether that's emotional or functional, likely you have the highest share in that category, but also the highest brand equity of that category. So there's something about the way in which our brains work that you're finding that, I guess, give that a little bit of substance, even though it's on a reported scale, that something about us as humans when we think of car and we think of a brand in that car category I guess the stronger overlap between those association centers mm-hmm. in our brain makes us remember that brand more than another brand.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I certainly don't want to give the impression that, you know, that I believe that everybody who's doing marketing and branding should be doing neuroscience and that, right. you know, right. that it provides a privileged and better way of doing this. So I think what's important and, and you just described that is to understand and put, put some scientific meat, you know, underneath um, the, you know, the sort of more traditional approaches within marketing. So, you know, in some cases neuroscience will provide, you know, better uh, return on investment than, um, than you get if you're just using survey and self-report techniques. But in other cases, it might not, it might provide you something that's equivalent. Right. And Mm -hmm. in that case, well, you know, that's, it's good to know, but there's no point in every, you know, in every company, every every advertising company or whatever, paying all the money that it costs to do brain imaging. Right. So, you know, that's a, whatever, a thousand bucks an hour, you've got to have access to the devices. It's cumbersome. It's slow to access. You need a lot of, technical wherewithal to actually do the study. So it's not for everyone or and not for every application. Now that said, one of the things we're trying to do is to where we have validated and delivered a real biological, you know, neuroscientific understanding of a particular practice or measure in marketing, we're trying to then offload that to A set of uh, kind of cheaper, more scalable biometric measures, including uh, EEG and a bunch of measures related to arousal, to see if we can capture almost as much of the variance, right? So, and that would allow practitioners, you know, to work with scientists, you know, in an iterated fashion, say you want to do A B testing on ads or something like that, to do so in a way that is cost effective and can deliver. Insights on the time scale that's necessary for business.
0: Interesting, interesting. Well, I, I want to change subjects a little bit, but in a similar vein, one of the, one of the brands that was mentioned in the article we keep referencing was Dollar Shave Club. And I pick it, I pick I pick this example out in particular because it's a, it's a relatively new brand. It's not an established mm-hmm. brand like Gillette or you know the likes. And it seems that they've been successful at creating a rich set of associations is my word for it, but memories and, and feelings towards the brand and consumers' brains that's likely led to some of their success. One, can you explain kind of how how you think that that's working? in a new brand situation?
1: Well, I think it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting example. Um, This is one that, that Leslie really, really brought to the fore to, you know, certainly to my consciousness, because you had, you can think of it in some ways that the, the, you know, before Dollar Shave came along, you had a real stagnant, you know, brand environment. You had these behemoths, Gillette and, chick and I I can't even it's like have just been around forever and the only thing that was ever changing was how many blades were actually on each razor. So there's always this kind of competition to oh now ours has five, you know well we have six blades. It's <laughs> not clear how much better that is, you know right. uh, it's certainly more expensive. And so then, you know, you had Dollar Shape come along with a, a kind of really radically different approach, which was to say, you know, hey we're gonna do this, you know, more cheaply we're going to cut the friction down by delivering this to your door. You know, we're going to make this a subscription thing and we're going to create some really funny ads. Right. And do this kind of on a really rapid time scale. And, you know, I think that that achieved a number of things. I mean, one is that it made Dollar Shave stand out. Right. So um, because it had all these other features that were not at all in play, you know, with regard to the other brands that were out there, these sort of old you know, tried and true brands. And so they were doing something very, very different. And they kept kind of rolling out these, you know, these innovations. And I think, you know, this is total speculation. But, you know, one of the things that it made me think about was actually the process by which our brains learn and by which we come to value, you know, value objects and people and commodities and and, and goods and brands which our dopamine system is involved in, and dopamine we now know is not really a pleasure chemical but it is a it's a chemical in your brain that uh signals when some when a, a stimulus tells you that the world is a little bit better than you thought it was right so <laughs> um, and so these sort of every time you know dollar Shape was coming out with something new the users the customers were getting little hits of dopamine Whereas for Gillette and Chick, I mean, basically nothing was ever changing. And we know that when nothing is changing, there's no prediction that the world is getting any better. So you're not really seeing that same kind of dopamine-linked learning process. So, you know, this is all speculative, but, you know, what, what they were capable, of, what they were able to do was to make the, you know, make the brand and the product stand out in terms of a bunch of different features and by kind of continuing to have these, Novel, new messages coming out perhaps drive uh, learning and try drive preferences toward um, toward that particular brand. Right. Well,
0: it seems like for big brands, you know, in this case, Gillette, but in the prior example of Samsung and Apple, it it seems like there's an inherent risk since the brains, our brains, are malleable. Meaning, like what what matters today may shift over time, and if we're not to your point, you know, not doing something new and different or improving or giving these little dopamine hits, then, you know, we're at risk of losing share. Is that how you see it or are you thinking about it right now?
1: Well, I mean, that is the case, but, you know, you also, you know, you also know that, and we're, I think, keenly aware that for these big brands, they've spent, they've invested so much money, right, in the equity of their brand and creating uh, hopefully a very strong, emotional connection with their customers. And so if you violate that, right. In a way that is perceived as, as if, you know, it's like, as if your your, your spouse was cheating on you or something like that. So if you, you know, if you think back to when, when new Coke came out, um, you know, that was maybe that was before your time, but it was certainly, uh, in my era where, you know, they, they changed the formula. Right. And, yeah. and people were, you know, were livid. It was like you had, um, you know, yes. I don't know. It cheated, and it, it was so personal, right, and so right. social and intensive and emotion uh, that it was like a total backfire. So there's mm-hmm. a you know a company trying to innovate in terms of its product, and you know they had they had completely violated the trust of their customers. So in some sense, I mean, maybe this is what you were getting at. There's such an opportunity for a new brand, you know, a young brand. Mm-hmm. To be disruptive and to be innovative and in that way attract attention and to kind of keep rolling out all these little, these little dopamine hits, which could potentially drive, you know, drive sales and drive uh, people to convert to that brand. We have to think about that against the larger brand landscape in which these, uh, you know, these behemoth companies, they still command the, the lion's share of the market. So it would take, it's going to take some effort. And probably some luck for these upstart brands to really break in and make it.
0: Well, one last concept I'm not sure if you've looked at yet is loyalty. And how is loyalty, does loyalty exist, I guess, with mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. any of the studies that you've seen? I, I, there's research out there, I think very valid research that says, you know, there's loyalty across all brands. But it basically kind of fall, falls out very similar to market share. Meaning market leaders have more loyalty than market laggards as an example
1: well I, we have not we have not looked at loyalty per se, but I think it would directly follow upon the work we did on on kind of brand empathy and the deep mm-hmm. emotional connection that people can have with a company is actually part of our long term strategy for that study because we can call back the participants that we you know whose brains we scanned, and so we should be able to Forecast or predict which of those individuals actually remain loyal to their brand, which actually switched <laughs> to another brand. Because in you know we would predict that those customers who had the strongest you know empathetic and social emotional connection to their brand are going to be the least likely to switch. Right. Whereas for those because there was variation across people, right. Whereas for those who that was con- particularly weak that they're much more likely to switch and show very low loyalty to the brand.
0: Yeah, that'll be something to look forward to as you continue your work. I do want to switch gears because I I love to talk about the person behind the topics as well as the topics themselves.
1: Uh, Okay.
0: And, And one of these, this is my psychologist coming out in me, but my first question is, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today?
1: Hmm. That's, um, you know, what comes to mind and this is, it's may sound a little hagiographic, but you know, when I was in high school, so I, you know, I was very academic, but you know, I was also captain of the football team. And I was also in this kind of kind of performance singing group. That's very much like the show Glee. Hmm. So I had to learn how to navigate a bunch of different, social worlds. You know, I was sort of, I was like, I was like thin in glee. I mean, not to glorify myself, but, but in the sense that I was bridging multiple communities and, right. you know, it became natural for me to do that. And, you know, that's what I do now. So, um, you know, but, but now it's, it's various uh, disciplines within academia and also now really practitioners out in the field. So, there's something to that, I guess, right. To that, yeah. that experience. I mean, I wasn't like that growing up and it was something I had to learn how to do. And, you know, now it's just, now it's something I seek out, you know, it's, it gives me, you know, it gives me energy to really try to to find connections between different groups of people.
0: Right. Right. Well, and it shows that you, you've got, you, even at an earlier age you had so much varied interest.
1: Absolutely. Yeah
0: what advice would you give your younger self?
1: I think the biggest advice I'd give myself would be to not stress out so much. Uh, (laughs) I was constantly worried that I wasn't, that I was going to fail. And that was really, really hard. And, uh, you know, in the end, you look back and you say, why was I (laughs) worried? You know, it all worked out in the end. I mean, you could argue that, well, if I hadn't worried, I wouldn't have worked as hard. But, you know, I don't think that's I think a lot of that was, was certainly misspent energy.
0: Right. Was there something about failure itself that scared you? Like what was, what was it about? Well, failure?
1: probably a lot of things, but I mean, for one, I, you know, I grew up pretty, you know, in a kind of very working class family and really the first person to go to college and, and graduate from college. And so there was a, you know, I felt like there was a lot riding, <laughs> you know, on my, Success And, you know, and I was always kind of worried about, you know, not making the most of that opportunity. So I, I think that's where most of that stress came from.
0: Got it. Got it. Well, but what, what fuels you? What drives you personally?
1: Great question. You know, I'm just, I, I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm very passionate about connecting all these disciplines. I'm very, you know, one of the things that really drew me to Wharton and Penn Ken However, which is, is new in terms of opportunity is, is really making the science applicable, making it useful for people, whether they're in business or, you know, in society in general. How can we take all of what we're doing here in the academy and in the sciences and translate it and make it accessible so people understand it, so they're interested in it and um, actually give them tools to, you know, to reach their, you know, their own kind of peak performance and ultimately enhance their own well-being. So that's honestly what's driving me now.
0: Okay. Well, two more questions for you. Are there are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of?
1: Oh, wow, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like well, there are my own personal brands that I, you know, I I'm members of their tribes, yeah. you know, like Apple, Apples, you know, I'm, I'm a big Apple person that and uh i don't know and theory and camper i'm really into i'm really into clothes and shoes so that's um (laughs) kind of something that's a little weird but i think honestly i'm really interested in important social causes and there are some you know i think what i am passionate about right now is climate change and what we're doing to the environment and the real difficulties that have you know it's as Really bedeviling us in terms of changing our own patterns of decision making, right? So, because people didn't evolve to think and act on time scales that were, you know, many decades, if not, you know, a hundred years ahead, not just for their own well-being and their children's well-being, their children's children's well-being, that means our brains are not particularly, you know, well-suited to this kind of challenge. And so, I think, you know, I admire a lot of, you know, people who are trying to develop market-based approaches that help to sell the ideas of acting in ways that are you know would hopefully be be beneficial with that regard. I mean I was reading an article in the New York Times over the weekend about it was called uh, Preserve Our Winters, right? So it's it's an organization that is devoted to getting people, you know, people who don't normally fight for the cause but but have the means to do so and a lot of those folks are, you know, love skiing and winter sports and uh, we're already seeing the demise of uh, of skiing you know we could be there could be no skiing within i don't know decades or at least it'll be a really truncated ski season and um you know everyone's got their heads in the, the proverbial sand about this, and that's I think trying to find some way this is a really a marketing action right right how do we find ways to connect with with causes with ideas that really matter to people to get them to you know to change their behavior to take action so cool. um yeah. I'll, I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Last question is: you know, What do you see as the future of marketing? Where do you think it's going to go?
1: Yeah, well, I think we're going to see an increasing usage of neuroscience and other um, other related disciplines to help to really refine marketing, refine advertising, and design. You know, as there's as the barriers to entry lower, as more people are you know who are trained in neuroscience or trained in marketing begin to work in each area. I think we're going to see a real change there because it's quite clear that for a lot of these, a lot of these activities like advertising, if you don't, if you don't collect neuroscience data, you're leaving actionable data on the floor and you know, that you could use to improve your, you know, your predictions of the market, et cetera, by an order of magnitude. So I think once people come to realize that you're going to see a lot more of it.
0: Interesting. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been great talking to you.
0: Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.